university professors spend a lot of time talking about a lot of things with each other at academic conferences and in academic journals. The problem with that is you don't go to academic conferences and you don't read academic journals, and I want to talk to you. Some of the most interesting thoughts in America about popular culture never get to be heard by people outside of the walls of academia, so I'm on a mission to bring those thoughts to you. Fabulous people, interesting ideas, brilliant conversations. I'm Dr. Christopher Bell, and this is a hard hat area. You're on with the Deconstruction Workers. Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. This is Dr. Christopher Bell. This is the Deconstruction Workers. Today, my guest worker is Dr. Shannon Sindorf. Dr. Sindorf is an instructor at both the University of Colorado Boulder in Media Studies and at the University of Colorado Denver in Communication. Welcome to the program, Dr. Sindorf. Thank you. Hi, Chris. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, can I call you Chris? You can call me Chris and I will call you Shannon and it'll be all good. When you called me Dr. Sindorf, I was like, um, it threw me a little bit. (laughs) I try at least here at the outset of these programs to be as, as academic on the up and up as we can, just to remind people we are dealing with doctors. We are. And you know what? I worked for those letters as did you. So, you (laughs) know what? I appreciate it. Okay. So today on the program... We are talking about a topic that has been kicking around our think tank for quite a few months, uh, maybe about a year. The Colorado Coalition for Popular Culture Scholarship is a group of scholars who every year gets together and thinks heavily about some of the most pressing popular culture issues in the country. This year, our think tank, of which both Shannon and I are a part of, have been kicking around the idea of what do we do with popular culture when the person who makes that popular culture turns out to be really toxic for one reason or another? Whether that's, and these are probably people or issues we will end up talking about today, but whether that's on the really openly socially problematic side, things like Bill Cosby, for example, Mm. who turns out to be a many multiple times serial rapist, Mm. or whether it's someone who just turns out to be kind of distasteful. Here I'm thinking of Joss Whedon, who made all of these television programs about feminist characters and turned out to, you know, be a guy who cheats on his wife. And so there's all kinds of shades of gray in between there of where do we draw the line separating people who make popular culture from the popular culture that they make? Does that sound like a pretty succinct sort of wrap up of where the conversation has been so far? It sounds perfect. Okay, so. Yeah, I would say so. Let's open up the gates and maybe kick some of these issues around. Or do you have have any setup that you'd like to do before we head out? No. I mean, I have some things I'd like to talk about, but we can do that later. Okay. So because it's the big looming issue within this conversation, I thought we would maybe start off with Bill Cosby and just get him him out of the way early because... That's probably important. That's probably a good a good call. Whenever we talk about Bill Cosby, really, there are two camps at this point that form. I don't think anyone is in the camp of he didn't do it. 
Not no. anymore. That, that ship has sailed, particularly since he's been found guilty in a court of law. So it's not so much whether or not he's done it, because he, he did. It's whether or not we still ascribe any cultural value to the work that he produced because he turns out to be this serial rapist. I would say yes. I mean, it, it's actually a hard one because, well, first of all, we've got the intersections of the sexual assault and the race stuff. Because my first question when you talk about Bill Cosby and you said, we all, no, nobody thinks he didn't do it. And my question there is, if he were white, would there be people holding out saying he didn't do it? And I think the answer, unfortunately, might be yes. So the, in that sense, Bill Cosby is a difficult and complicated example. I know it, on one hand, it seems like it's a no-brainer, open-and-door case because what he did was so egregious. But it actually complicates things a little bit when you bring the race into it. But the other thing about Bill Cosby, I mean, what he did was pretty groundbreaking. I mean, putting a middle-class Black family on television just being normal, you know, that was a huge step forward. And so the question is, like, do we shut that off, with that huge cultural development? Do we, say, cancel that because of what he did? So two things here. Number one, I think adding in the race element is very interesting just in a slightly different way, because I would argue that if he was white and this turned out, I still think it would it would be as bad as it has been. Okay. I but what I would say is I think people within the black community defended him longer than mm. people within the white community would have defended him if he was white. That makes sense. I think that if Bill Cosby was white, it wouldn't have taken 68 people to come out against him. He'd have been done at 10. Hmm. I, I feel like because he's America's dad and because he occupies this space of, as you say, sort of this great racial divide navigator. Right. That actually was a bigger part of why it took so long. Because oh, it I wasn't see. just... This guy, this man is a serial rapist. It's this black icon, the best of black people, quote unquote, so to speak, right. is a serial rapist. And people didn't want to believe that. They just didn't want to believe it. Right. And so is that, but is that because what he did, his cultural uh, contribution? Yes. In terms of the text, it is so, is so great. Absolutely, I would argue. So then is it that, right. So then this brings up the question, if someone's, the term canceled is actually something I kind of want to talk about because I, I have mixed feelings about it, but I'm going to use it now because it's such a good shorthand. So do, do we then cancel someone just because of what they did or I mean obviously the you know algorithm that we're using we take into account the magnitude of their work and so that tells me that there's more going on than obviously just egregious behavior somebody engaged in I would argue if you know go, sort of going back to Chris Rock's view about OJ Simpson right I mean if OJ yeah. Simpson drove a bus we wouldn't even talk about him he would just have been Orenthal the bus driving murderer <laughs> I think it's the exact same thing at work here with Bill Cosby. If Bill Cosby wasn't America's dad and on I Spy and the Jello Pudding Man, we would not be talking about this. He would be William Cosby, the serial rapist who wouldn't have gotten to 68 women. He would have gotten to three and he'd have been in prison forever. So then is it even worse, the fact that he was this icon who made such advances 
in our conversations about race in this country and depictions, representations of race in this country? Is it then even worse because of what he did, took maybe kind of took that away? Well, sure, because as much as he moved the American Black community forward, it becomes the situation of allowing for people who are racist in the first place to enter into a space of, see, even the best one of them is terrible. Ugh, yeah. It's exponentially worse because it's him. Got it. Yep, I I agree. I agree. But I still don't want to lose, like, what he did for depictions of Black families. I'm still, you're right, it is worse because of that, but at the same time, I don't want to give up that progress. Neither do I, and it's why I empathize so much my heart goes out so much to people who have had to negotiate that in public right and here i'm thinking of all of the people who go to malcolm jamal warner or who go to lisa bonet and say well were you one of the people he was sexually assaulting and she's like no i wasn't and i want to be clear about that I got bad vibes from him sometimes, but I chalked that up to he was kind of a jerk. Like, I didn't know at the time. And for her to have to publicly defend herself and her work when she was unaware that these other things were going on. She was a kid. She was 16, 17, 18 years old, you know? Yeah. And then it just, it ends up tainting her image. Well, not only tainting her image, but tainting her livelihood. Yeah. All of the stations that now refuse to show the Cosby show, for example. Right. Those are residual revenue that these performers are no longer able to have access to he took that away from them too yeah well and that's it that's a really good point too is that like you know when someone not bill cosby but someone who has like an active show um that gets canceled because of their behavior it's not just the performers but think of all the like boom operators and the pas and the assistant directors and everything like everybody then who just lost their livelihood you know it's not like they can choose which shows to work on because of like oh i don't agree with what they did or whatever exactly this is the conversation that was going on with roseanne when roseanne had Right. The public racist meltdown because apparently of Ambien or whatever. <laughs> yeah, Ambien, <laughs> the side effect of Ambien is racism. Exactly. But the conversation around that was, oh, Roseanne has destroyed her career. The conversation about that wasn't John Goodman came out right. of retirement. Sarah Gilbert left her talk show to come back to this sitcom. Right. Other people had other jobs that they quit to be on the revival of Roseanne that lasted three episodes before she had a public racist meltdown. Right. Most of those actors are not in a position, even if they, I mean, yeah, most of those actors are, even if they knew, right, which we did know that Roseanne was problematic before that happened. But sure. like, they're not in a position to say, you know what, I'm going to turn down that big ass paycheck because because she's racist or, or whatever. Exactly. You know, it's like, so yeah, it, this economically impacts the livelihoods of so many people. It's not, we can't reduce it to just the bad actor at the top and what this means for them. I mean, I think, you know, say somebody like, like Michael Douglas is going to be okay, but think of all the other people who are involved in his, or maybe involved in his projects who actually, I don't even think anything happened to Michael Douglas. I don't believe, I don't believe that it did. Yeah. <laughs> I believe he came out just fine. Yeah, exactly. Much like Gary Oldman 
much like Gary Oldman. Oh, God, there's so many of them. I can't even remember them all. It's like they go in my head and then out. I can't. I don't have room. Gary Oldman has a very public record of very charitably shady dealings with women. Right. And continues to get cast in stuff and continue he just won an oscar not too long ago and nobody seems to talk about his history of behavior do you think it's because he has this image of being sort of a outside the mainstream character in the first place i do maybe maybe so maybe we forgive some of that because oh because he's already not expected to be held up to the same standards i don't know exactly how that works I think in all of these cases, whether it's Bill Cosby or it's Gary Oldman or it's Johnny Depp or whoever, or Roseanne even, the thing at work, and here's how I explain it to my students. So I'm going to get sort of rhetorical slash philosophical here for a second. I think I can handle it. (laughs) I don't know about them. That was mostly a warning for the listeners. Oh. (laughs) So. That's right. It's all about them. Plato, in his work, The Republic, describes this story of the Ring of Gygus. So essentially what the Ring of Gygus is, is there's a guy and he's a shepherd and he works for this prince on the prince's land and the prince and the princess are not very good to the the peasants and the princess is really beautiful, but she's also really mean and they store all their gold in the castle and they take all the food from from the farmers. And one day the shepherd is out tending his sheep and a giant hole opens up in the earth. There's an earthquake and there's a rift and it opens up in the earth and one of the sheep falls into the rift. And so our hero goes to the edge of the rift and he peers over the edge of the rift and he sees his sheep and he climbs down into the rift to get his sheep and on the ledge where the sheep is standing, he sees a golden ring. So he picks up the golden ring and he carries the sheep up to the top and lets him run off into the meadow and he puts on the ring And he realizes the ring makes him invisible. Hmm. And Plato asks, within this dialectic that he's writing, what should Glaucon do with the ring? And what he suggests is what Glaucon will do with the ring, because he is invisible, he will not use that ring to do things that are good or right or just. What he will do is put on that ring and go to the prince's castle and sneak in and Mm -hmm. murder the prince in his sleep and have sex with the princess without her knowing and steal all the gold. And furthermore, if Glaucon told everyone around him that he had this ring and then told all those people, I only use that ring to do things that are good and right and virtuous, everyone around him would say, oh, you're such a great person for only doing things that are good and right and just and what a wonderful guy you are. And when he left, they would all say, what a stupid idiot. He could have gone and got all the money and killed the prince and had sex with the princess and no one would know. And essentially what he says is the Ring of Gygus is a kind of invisibility that you would never use for good. And if you did use it for good, other people would say you were stupid. And the reason I tell that story is because when I deal with my students, what I say is in popular culture in America, celebrity and persona operates like the Ring of Gygus. So the persona of Bill Cosby, America's dad, is a ring of invisibility for William H. Cosby Jr. serial rapist. Or Roseanne, this funny white collar worker, is 
a ring of Gygus, a ring of invisibility for Roseanne Barr, the racist. And we don't, because money and fame and popularity and persona are the only thing we see, the actual human being inside is invisible and therefore can use that invisibility and necessarily will use that invisibility to do the most horrible of things. I see that, but do you think that, I can see how that was definitely true 40 years ago, but people's private behavior is so much more visible to us now than it ever has been. So does that change this? No, it actually reinforces this, I think, because it took until now for Bill Cosby to get caught. Roseanne was on the air in the 80s and everyone loved her. And now that there's the internet, people know that she's a racist. Right, that's what I'm saying. I think that's the Ring of Gygus is actually being exposed in modern society. Right. The invisibility no longer works. Right, so I guess that's what I meant. So it's these older stars. It is the Bill Cosbys, the Gary Oldmans, the Roseannes that are being caught in this trap. It's where this entire Me Too movement in Hollywood now is the historical moment where they where that can take root. Because 40 years ago, you didn't have the internet to broadcast all of the terrible things that people were doing, and it was its own kind of invisibility. And now that ring no longer functions in the same way in this current society. Right. There's nowhere to hide. Right. So Chris Hardwick, you know, it doesn't take too long for us to find out about his behavior with his ex-girlfriend. Exactly. Or, yeah. Whereas, yeah, Bill Cosby gets to do this for I don't know how many years without anybody really knowing, which you can't, that could not happen today. Exactly. Yeah, he could not get away with it. In 2018, the first time you smack your wife, you're out of Hollywood. Like, they're, you're on the internet immediately. Right. Ask Chris Brown. Right. Well. <laughs> you know? I mean, he didn't suffer the nearly the amount of consequences that he should have, but we knew about his behavior that day. Yeah, right. Yeah, what happens next is a different question. NFL players punching their wives in elevators that day. Right. Oh, God. You know, it's not like... 20 years ago where that woman would have just been getting beat every day. That's not, that is not the current environment. So then, okay. So then this kind of leads into a different thing that a question that I had that I think that I've been thinking about. I feel like because of me too and time's up, I feel like our conversations about gender and abuse and sexism have gotten, we're getting better at nuance in talking about these things. We're getting better at talking about, you know, and now we have women harassers and and, and abusers. And how do we deal with that? Our conversations are getting more complicated. They're getting more nuanced. They're getting more developed. Somewhat. Okay. I mean, you're right. I think that there are a couple of pretty clear examples that our conversations are still not nuanced in cases that don't fit the particular narrative. No, but we're dealing with that. Like you could see that we're sort of grappling with that. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking here of Brendan Fraser, for example. Yeah. Yeah. That is Brendan Fraser, who was also sexually harassed and no one seems to care because it doesn't fit the kind of narrative that me too is set up to fix. Uh, But I, well, but I, I yeah. Okay. So you're right. We aren't as good, but we're getting better. Um, But here's my, there's what I was going with this. I feel like our conversations about racism are anemic compared to our conversations about 
sexism. And I feel like they're not nuanced. They're not developed. They're largely limited to representation. How many black actors do we have nominated for Academy Awards? Right. Um, which is good. It's a good start. But I, I just, I don't feel like our, our conversations, I mean, I grew up in Los Angeles where conversations about race are necessarily nuanced and complicated. And I mean, I have details of that, but I don't need to get into. But one show actually that does a good job, I think, at least of tackling the nuances of racism is Insecure. And I don't think it's an accident that that show is set in Los Angeles, because in Los Angeles, I feel like we're kind of forced to have more complicated conversations about race. Anyway, my question to you is, do you think we're going to get there with our conversations about racism? Do you think they're with time, they will get more developed and more nuanced rather than just about representation? How many black characters or how many characters of color do we see on screen? I would say, I think... Possibly, but not probably. Okay. And the reason I would say that is that conversations about gender, the thing that conversations about gender have going for it is white women. Mm. Because gender is a thing we're quote unquote allowed to talk about in this society. Whiteness is not. Got it. Whiteness is a third rail. You are yeah. not allowed to point out that whiteness influences the conversations about every other ism, whether it's sexism or ableism or heterosexism or whatever. The mitigating factor in all of those discussions is the fact that you cannot ever bring up whiteness, particularly if it points out that white women are who are problematic in the conversation. So I think we could get there, but I don't think we will. I see that. I actually see that changing a little bit. And I can't think of an exact example right now, but I do. I mean, I, I definitely feel like there's a feeling of progress. Like I said, it hasn't progressed very far in our conversations about race, but at least we're talking. We're starting to talk about it more and in a little in a little bit better than we used to. I would like to see our conversations get to a more nuanced point. And I think, I don't know, I feel like the possibility is there that they may. Well, and I in some ways have the luxury or privilege of being black in this racial conversation. Because oh. the conversation about race has been about blackness for so long in this country. Right. I cannot imagine having this same conversation and I am an Asian person or right. I am a Native American person or I am Latino. Those populations of people have such limited access or entry point to conversations about race because when we talk about race in this culture, blackness versus whiteness is the heavyweight prize fight and everyone else is fighting in a lighter weight division. Got it. But, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know what to do with that, but I do think that there are some ways in which race is a necessarily more nuanced conversation because race in this culture is less forced binary yeah. in terms of a conversation than gender is. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure transgendered people feel the same way about the gender conversation that... Yeah non-black brown people feel about the racial conversation in this culture. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you're right. So all of that, I think, is to say that while I do think there is some more nuance in the way that we are talking about toxicity in terms of race or gender or whatever, I don't know that we're that great 
culturally at nuance in general. No, we're not. That's that. Yes. No, you're absolutely true. And we need, yeah, I, we need a champions of nuance, but that's a difficult thing to be a champion for. <laughs> right. You know, you, know, you, you can't, you, you're not going to see like, you know, go nuance on a bumper sticker. Exactly. Right. We don't deal in gray area well at all. No. Which, you know, was really highlighted going back to today's topic was really highlighted in the situation with Aziz Ansari. Oh, Yes. In where you had a whole bunch of outwardly consensual behavior, all of which skirted some weird gray lines. And yet the only way we had as a culture to talk about that was in in that box, this Me Too thing, which that situation did not qualify. It for. did not fit. It was it was some bad sex. But didn't you're right. That's the only box that we had to put it in. And that article was written her story was written as if it fit into that box. And it made some people like me, I remember reading it at first going, uh, you know, I don't know if this is really like, are we gonna dilute this movement by including bad sex, consensual bad sex? Which is what happens when you don't put walls around a thing from the beginning. What do you mean? What, what I mean by that is there's a vast amount of distance between Harvey Weinstein mm. making women have sex with him or look at him or whatever, blah, 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 he was doing mm -hmm. in order to further their careers mm -hmm. and two people engaging in sexual conduct and then one of them being like, yeah, I didn't really want to do that or like it that much. And so <laughs> right. now it's a problem. There's right. a vast amount of gulf between that. And oh, yeah. at no point during the instigation of the movement of, I mean, this has been going on forever, but this, but the, where we can sort of pinpoint the moment of the movement starting, which I always pinpoint, which I have later found out is actually not necessarily correct, but I always pinpoint the beginning of this Me Too era movement of a tweet by Alyssa Milano. That's yeah. sort of the pinpoint moment of it. When she hijacked the Me Too hashtag? Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. when, when she hijacks the Me Too hashtag. From a black woman. To her credit, using, she, Alyssa Milano is famous and, you know, the other person is not. True. Yes. No, I don't. Yeah. Uh, hijack is a, is a loaded phrase. It is it's a, a loaded, loaded word. <laughs> okay. So pinpointing this, the, the moment to the, to that Alyssa Milano tweet, the 15th of October in 2017. Okay. Yeah, when everybody, that's when the hashtag went viral and everybody started sharing their stories. Exactly. Right. So, you know, she writes this tweet, if you've ever been sexually harassed or assaulted, write me too as a reply to this tweet. And then 24,000 people come out of the woodwork to right. write their stories. If we pinpoint the movement to that moment, it was at that moment that nobody stepped in to say, here's what quote unquote counts oh, yeah. in this movement. And here are things that are outside of the scope of what we're talking about. Yeah, because somebody putting their hand on my butt isn't the same thing as like an assault, like a, you know bodily assault. Well, not even that, but somebody putting their hand on your butt is not the same thing as your boss putting their hand on yeah, your butt and right. saying, if you make me move my hand, you're going to lose your job. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. There were shades of gray necess necessary in that conversation that did not happen. You're right. And it became this huge catch all. 
Exactly. So it's this wide sweeping net. In some cases, this works out for the better because there are lots of unsavory characters who were okay. caught up in this who we don't have to really talk about it anymore. Right. In other cases, there were people caught up in this net who, I don't know. Yeah. And so, yeah, the nuance of this argument has been lost. And it does then push to the outside, marginalize those people who don't fit into the specific narrative being launched. I can't imagine Brendan Fraser's life right now. I can't. Where everyone else gets punished for doing what they did, but then when he tells his story, women are like, we weren't talking about you. Where was that really good article about him published? I can't remember, but there was a really great long magazine article about him and his, which is, this is the only reason I'm a little hesitant to put Brendan Fraser in the category of people who were forgotten, because that article did get some attention talking about him and how it affected his life. And, you know, he had to like move to a farm and raise alpacas or something. I believe Um, that was in GQ. Okay. It was, I believe it was in GQ. It was really good. So this is, we are capable of having those conversations, but those conversations aren't the ones that tend to go viral because, you know, you can only do so much nuance in 240 characters. Right. Right. So he said, for those, I, we keep talking about that. I don't want to talk around it in case you're not aware of Brendan Fraser or what happened to him. So oh. Brendan Fraser it, was an actor who was in a lot of stuff. Most people probably know him from The Mummy. He was in The Mummy franchise. Uh, those of us who are a little older remember him Remember him from Encino Man, mm-hmm. uh, the Pauly Shore movie. He, Brendan Fraser has been on a lot of stuff. And last year, when all this Me Too stuff was going on, he said, he alleged that the president of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, who was a man, by the way, I think his name was Phil Burke or something like that, Philip Burke, uh, said that this guy grabbed his butt in public in the in the middle of the Beverly Hills Hotel and like groped his crotch in public and that Fraser couldn't say anything because this guy was the president of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, which is the organization that hands out the Golden Globes. And when he came forward to say, this happened to me and I want this guy, you know, punished like all the rest of these people, it was a lot of women who closed the door on him and basically said, we weren't talking about you and your issues. We were talking about women. And it became this really distasteful thing. That's not to say the entire movement was of that same mindset. This happens all the time. You encounter the one Black Lives Matter movement person who's like, yeah, I hate white people. And all of a sudden, all Black Lives Matter people hate white people, right? And then they're held out as, see, see? See, see, exactly. And I'm not saying all women or even most women were like, oh, well, that doesn't count. It's not the same thing. But some very vocal ones were, and that became the face of him being shut out of access to the same cultural resources that were available to women who had been sexually harassed in that Cultural way. resources is a really good way of putting that. Cultural resources, right? Yeah. You know, I, I'll be honest with you, I don't remember that reaction to Brendan Fraser. I remember it didn't get a lot of attention, but the only thing I remember really going around about that was that GQ article. 
But I'm not. That's not to say that the phenomenon that you're talking about hasn't happened because it absolutely has. And I'm I'm trying to think of another example. But I feel like since then, and I don't remember when that was. I feel like since then we've gotten a little bit better about opening that door to men because this, say, the Asia Argento situation. She was accused of assaulting a 17-year-old, and she was one of the original sort of most vocal women who talked about what Harvey Weinstein did to her. And so it complicates, it's like, wait a minute, you know, the Me Too is going to take down one of the victims? Like, I don't know how to wrap my head around that. But I feel like we've seen some conversations that are doing a little bit of a better job since, say, Brendan Fraser, of handling male victims. Well, and I also think a lot of what happened to Fraser is happening in a different context as well, which are the people who come along and say, well, that was probably just a joke, bro. Why are oh, you so, yeah. why he was just, he was probably just messing around with you. This is happening right now, currently, right at this moment, Dustin Dunaway and I sat down and talked about professional wrestling. Mm-hmm. At this particular moment, there's a very high powered, very famous third generation professional wrestler named Randy Orton who is being investigated by the WWE for sexual harassment for doing something that is a long-standing prank within the wrestling community, which is whenever there's new writers on the shows, they'll bring the wrestlers in to meet them. And a lot of times those conversations happen in locker rooms after the shows or whatever. And so there was this new group of writers, male writers, who were in the locker room meeting a bunch of wrestlers. Randy Orton came around the corner and had pulled his penis out through his pants. And when he goes to shake hands with the writers, he makes no reference to it at all. And when the writers don't want to shake his hands, he's sort of like, what are you trying to big dog me? Like, you don't want to shake my hand. What's wrong with me? And he's ignoring the fact that his penis is out, right? That's so gross. Well, two of, two of the writers actually complained about it. Now, yeah. this this rib, this joke, has been going on in pro wrestling locker rooms since the 70s, really. Uh, yeah. probably, probably longer than that. But this is a different time, and it's a different environment. It's a different media landscape. These aren't other professional wrestlers. These are show writers, and they're used to working in television writing rooms, not necessarily in locker rooms. And so these writers complained about it to their HR, essentially. And Mm -hmm. now he's being investigated for it. And the response hasn't been, hey, Randy, stop pulling your penis out in front of the writers. The response, even from people within the organization, has been, these writers don't belong here because they can't take take a joke. Uh, the kinds of jokes that we make in this business. Can't take a joke. Yeah. How many times have I heard that? Right. So I do think it becomes different when men are involved as the victim of these kinds of toxic behaviors. You you know, you're right. And a lot that has, has to do with like our norms around masculinity and like men are expected to not be vulnerable and men are expected to right be hard. And, you know, I mean, there's like all that needs to be taken down too. A lot of things need to be taken down before we can really have this conversation. Well, and it's a whole different conversation about how men have always classically been able to explain away any kind of behavior through, I was just joking. Yeah. Boys will be boys. Exactly. Not boys will be responsible for boys' behavior, but 
boys will be boys. Boys don't have to be. Right. right. Boys will be boys literally means boys don't have to be responsible for anything they do. Right. Because, you know, that's just who they are. So we sort of ended up down a slight rabbit hole. But uh, not, yeah, we uh, really did. But not really, because I do think it comes back around to what do we do with the people when their behavior is really toxic? Do I not watch Toy Story anymore because John Lasseter was removed from being the CEO of Pixar for sexually harassing people? Do right. I not watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer anymore? Because I know that while Buffy is kicking feminist ass on screen, Joss Whedon is sleeping around on his wife. Right. You know, do I not watch Captain Jack Sparrow anymore because Johnny Depp may or may not have smacked around his wife and she may or may not have smacked around him in return? I don't. I'm not in their house and I don't know, but what do I do with that? We consume popular culture for a reason. We get things out of it. They, they're empowering. They mean something to us. And so does it matter? This is the question. Does it matter to your enjoyment of the text, the empowerment you get from a text and what it means to you in your life if you find out that the creator has behaviors that are objectionable or toxic or horrible or you know has values that you don't agree with? And that's the question. And, and, and you know, my argument about this, because we've had this conversation before, my arg original argument about this was, it, you know what, it really doesn't matter that, you know, what you still get what you get out of it, even if no matter what the creator is doing, because, right, so we all, this is what is potentially an exploitative relationship. You have just in general, the act of, of us consuming popular culture, because you have these giant companies making this stuff for us to buy, because these are products. This is commerce. This is a relationship of commerce, but they make these products that are full of messages that we didn't create that other people created that we consume and messages that we absorb. Well, that is potentially an exploitative relationship. And, you know, a lot of right, scholars argue that it is, but we have power in that relationship. And our power is to interpret those texts the way that we want. And that we, you know, we all, based on our background, based on all kinds of factors, are going to take meaning differently from all of those texts. That's our power in this relationship. And so in order to, if we consume ourselves too much with what the creators of those texts do, then we're giving them even more power over how we interpret those texts and what those texts mean for us. We give, we almost give them back to them. When we interpret texts for ourselves, we take them back a little bit and they become ours. But if we say, you know what, I'm going to cede control to you, the creator, or not cede control, but I'm going to take into account what you're doing out there. We're ceding control back to the company a little bit. And that, that is my, one of my objections with this concept of this person is canceled. I like it because they have shorthand and it's funny, but on the other hand, it's like, does that mean I'm not allowed to like this anymore? Because I got to admit, you know, there's still a bit of a punk rocker in me that doesn't want to be told what to like. And I may not agree with, I don't want any of those behaviors happening. I don't want people to be racist. I don't want people to be sexist or rapey or anything, you know, but at the same time, I, I don't want to be told what to like. And I feel, I don't want to lose my power in this. I don't want to lose my power to be empowered by these texts. 
Yeah, no, I I absolutely can see that perspective, and I come down in much the same way, although a lot of times that feels to me like then I'm just justifying, I'm just making justifications, you know? I watch The Cosby Show even though I know Bill Cosby is a serial rapist because Bill Cosby is not why I watched The Cosby Show. Right, right either as a kid or now. So then do you, do you, what do you do? Do you turn it off? Do you not? No, I watch it. And then. And you feel guilty. <sighs> someone says to me, why are you watching the Cosby show? You know, you're just supporting this guy who's a rapist and his work is just a cover up for all the rape that he's doing or whatever. And I say to myself, if I don't watch the show, Bill Cosby gets punished. But if I don't watch the show, and they don't play it on air anymore, like I said earlier, then Lisa Bonet doesn't get her check. Right. And Keisha Knight-Pulliam doesn't get her check, and Malcolm Jamal Warner doesn't get his check, and that's wrong. That's wrong to me. So is it purely financial then? For me, no, because it's because when I was little, my whole concept of what it meant to be, uh, I didn't grow up in south central los angeles i didn't grow up in the heart of new orleans louisiana or in mississippi or in alabama i grew up as a suburban black kid in the suburbs of denver colorado Mm -hmm. i grew up in a very upper middle class family both of my parents were professional people Mm-hmm. All three of me, my brother, and my sister were all expected to get good grades, to go to college. I'm a doctor. My sister is a software engineer. My brother is a manager, a district manager at a warehouse company. All of us excelled in our particular fields, in our particular careers, not because we wanted to, but because that was the expectation of us. And when I was a child, the only place I saw my Mm -hmm. life as a suburban black kid reflected was in the Cosby show. My family was not the family on Good Times. My family was not the family on Sanford and Son. My family was the family on the Cosby show. We were upper middle class kids. All our friends were white. We lived in a predominantly white neighborhood. Uh, all And my family internally had this continual drive to remind us that we were black people, which is the essential milieu of that show, Yeah, and which is now replicated in the current era with the show Blackish. Blackish. Yeah. Blackish is the only show on television that reflects my black experience. Yeah. And so... I watched The Cosby Show then because it was a reminder that we were not an abnormality. Right. That our existence was not some somehow the exception to the rule. There were other black families who were successful, who were unapologetic about being either successful or about being black. And you can't, I, you, I can't erase that out of, my upbringing because it is a fundamental part of who I am now as an adult. And I don't want you to have to erase that. I want you to be able to get every, all of that out of the show, even watching it again now, knowing what you know. That And that's my problem here is that I feel like I don't want people telling me what I can and can't enjoy and what I can and can't get out of things. And I feel like we're, we're venturing into a little bit of overcorrection territory in that sense. I don't want to erase what the Cosby show did 
for black life and for black representations. I don't want to erase that. But yes, Bill Cosby's horrible. You cannot excuse what he did. But I don't, in this case, and maybe it's selfish, I want to be able to separate the art from the artist. Well, and this is what Dave Chappelle said about this, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, yeah, he he did so much, but he did so much, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's the it, that's what it is. He he did so much for the black community, but he did so much evil. And how much yeah. do those two things balance it out? And it's a harder conversation when it's someone like Bill Cosby, right? Mm-hmm. It's a different conversation when it's I had the same the same issues with Orson Scott Card. So Orson Scott Card is an author. He wrote a book called Ender's Game. Oh, yeah. When I was a kid, Ender's Game was a really big deal to me. It's it, it's a very sort of seminal text for nerd kids who like science fiction stuff. Right. It's, it, it's one of the sort of holy trinity of nerd kid books. Mm-hmm. So Orson Scott Card, as it turns out, is an enormous homophobe. Like funnels tons of his money into these anti-gay organizations and was a big supporter of anti-gay legislation and blah, blah, blah. And they made a film out of Ender's Game. And when the film came out, a lot of people were struggling with, we grew up and we've been waiting our whole life to see this Ender's Game movie. And then we just found out that Orson Scott Card is this horrible, horrible person. And what do we do with both of those things? And as it turns out, what the sort of group solution was, was lots of people bought tickets to other movies and then snuck into Ender's Game. Okay. So they they ghosted the movie. That's an interesting metaphor. So that the theater didn't get punished because the theater makes its money not from ticket sales, but from popcorn sales and whatever. So, you know, you go to the theater, you buy a ticket for a movie you do want to support, you get your popcorn or whatever, so the theater gets the money, and then they were just going to see Ender's Game because they wanted to see the movie, but they didn't want him to get any money. Right. So, Meet Joe Black got the money. You know, you know the rest Basically. (laughs) Basically. It's, uh, it's, It's essentially what indie film... That needs the money. Right. Do we want to support instead of this guy, even though we've waited our whole life to see this movie? And then we're not going to see the indie movie, which is a whole other and, end of right. the you know, Well, yeah, there's the, there's the other part of it, which is, <laughs> right. yeah, I, I wasn't paying to see, you know, August Osage County or whatever. <laughs> any, I wasn't trying to pay the money to see that anyway. So <laughs> the and the other caveat to this story, the sort of sad caveat to the story is the movie was really terrible. So, <laughs> yeah, so it all sort of worked out in the end. But. I think we've solved it. <laughs> so we just we just ghost all the things that we don't like. The answer is theft. The answer is piracy. This is the this is like the third time on this podcast that the answer has been let's just steal it. This... Well, I think Chris, this is a pattern for a reason. You know? There are no accidents. There are no coincidences. It I seems think to be the way that we solve our problems in yeah. this in this collective let's just go take stuff theft. but it's a specific kind so it's a more of a robin hood theft than it right, is a, yeah exactly it's a, it's not like i'm stealing from you know the my neighbor it's i'm stealing from the big huge companies that were trying to exploit me anyway so you know it's like when i advocated people should steal the bootleg of hamilton right why Lin-Manuel Miranda doesn't need your money. And if you knew Lin-Manuel Miranda, he would probably tell you, yeah, it's all right, you stole this. Because it's more important that you see it than that I get the money for it. 
I got pl- I have plenty of money now. I'd rather you just see the thing. Right. Well, if that were true, I don't know. Maybe he'd find a way. I guess his con- the con- his contract probably can't say that he could you know pass out copies on the internet. But... Right. Right. There are probably structural reasons why he can't just give them out, but he doesn't care that much if you bootleg it. Yeah. So it's theft, but fancier. Theft with a soul. I don't know that we're necessarily advocating outright theft. I no, think it's we're a doing, metaphor. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. We're advocating supporting things that are good and not supporting things that are bad. Don't sue me, Disney. Is Elsa gay? It is my sincerest hope on earth that Elsa's gay. I personally say absolutely. Absolutely, Elsa's lesbian, and it's clearly that Elsa's a lesbian. The real question will come with whether or not Elsa gets to have a girlfriend. So here's now here's the question that brings us back to what we're talking about. Does it matter if Disney wanted Elsa to be gay or not? It only matters if Disney wanted Elsa to be gay if they actually turn out to make her that way. Yeah, but even if they did, we don't know if it's because the audience was decided that Elsa is a lesbian. And oh, I see what you're saying. Um, I don't care. I don't care why they do it. Right. So in this sense, this is a sense we're turning this whole thing on its head. In this sense, creators don't matter. I think in this sense, creators do matter, but creator intent doesn't matter. I think it matters intensely that it's Disney. I don't think it matters if Disney comes out and says, we made Elsa gay specifically because we want gay people's money. I don't care. (laughs) The upshot of it is we get gay characters on screen. Right. And why they did it doesn't really matter to me. Just as it doesn't matter to me why Bill Cosby made The Cosby Show. If he made it specifically to be a cover-up so that he could sexually assault people, his intent in creating the show doesn't matter to me. Right. Because of what it did. Because of what it does. Right. So just like Elsa being a lesbian and the social meaning that that has progress that that creates doesn't matter what they intended. Exactly. The benefit of it outweighs whatever intent because, and I don't need Disney to tell me why they do it because I already know why Disney's going to do it because they want gay people's money. I already know that. Yeah, you, yeah, you've got the inside track on this. Well, it's not. You don't even need the inside track for that. That's the reason why all media corporations do anything is because they figure out a demographic they haven't taken all the money from yet and try to go get it. Is there social value in Black Panther? Sure. Do I think Marvel made Black Panther because they want to advance the cause of black people? No, it's because they know black people are pissed. There's no black superheroes. So they give them Black Panther and then they take all the black people's money. I get it. Exactly. Yeah. Intent doesn't matter. I don't care why they did it. I'll take it. So, so in that sense, like if we take that same logic and I don't want to say that what Bill Cosby did doesn't matter, but it doesn't matter to my enjoyment of the text and what it did for me and my life. And this goes for all pop culture. Especially when we get into the grayer territories. If there was concrete proof in court documents or whatever that, yes, Johnny Depp did beat his wife, then I might feel differently about Captain Jack Sparrow or about him playing Grindelwald. There isn't. Right. And until there is, I'm going to say he's probably an unsavory dude. Uh, He's fun to watch as Captain Jack. And if I find out that he's a terrible, awful human being, it will probably affect how i see this character but right now it doesn't so do you think that creators are punished less 
for racism than they are for sexism or sexual abuse. Oh, 100%. Yes. Yeah. I've been seeing that too. And I've been noticing that too. It is a lot easier to come back from, or it just doesn't, people don't pay so much attention when they find out, say what, you know, about Tim Burton, for example, I don't hear people talking about that as much as I hear people talking about, you know, a lot of this stuff going on with women. Although I do think, again, that comes in spectrums as well. We don't hear as much about Tim Burton because Tim Burton said, I don't really see the need to put people of color in my movies. That's a very different statement than, you know, Mel Gibson coming out saying the Jews ruined the world. (laughs) But Mel Gibson came back. Kind of. I mean, I mean, his career was toileted for quite some time. Yeah. So I guess yeah the the longevity of the canceling uh, that's a that's a whole that's a whole academic study in itself right you could you could plot the trajectory of different kinds of acts and and the careers of different kinds of actors and come up with some interesting conclusions about that I mean we're not it's not like we're getting new sitcoms featuring Kramer like that's right, <laughs> right. You know. but we're gonna remake it. There there are lines there. We, you know, there are lines. Right. No, that's a good point. That's a good point. So where we always end up is at the end of the day, toxic creators, what? Well, the easy answer to that is that toxic creators is a box that we like to put things in when the the box is a lot more, uh, nuanced and multifaceted you know it's not square maybe it's a multi uh, it's a multifaceted diamond that needs more nuance than the way we treat it like right like we talked about we aren't very good at having nuanced conversations about different kinds of behavior but i think we kind of agreed that we shouldn't just discount all the benefit that we got from those popular culture texts because of the the behavior or the beliefs of their creators. What what do you think? <laughs> I think toxic creators can influence the way that we see their work, but they don't have to. Ah, that's a good that's a good. Okay. So we still want to retain our power. Yes, as we want to retain Our power as not just consumers. Of interpretation. But our power as... Cultural meaning makers in our own right. Yes. That the cultural impact of a work has always, in some respects, been divorced from the realities of its creator. True. And our conversations may have gotten more complicated about that but i think that that fact still holds true and that there is a level of toxicity we are willing to tolerate in order to get the work right and i think that that's okay i think that that's probably okay okay (laughs) i think that's probably okay i think that i think there are points at which we can say no you're you're dismissed and so is your work right Particularly, right. yeah. some people can be canceled. Particularly, for, for, your work currently, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, we're not going to go back and burn the tapes of Roseanne, but we're not letting her make any more TV shows. Yes. Okay. That that is good. And theft is the answer. 
I think we have come to that conclusion just as a scholarly group that yeah, at the well, end of the day, steal it if you can. Next year's panel. Steal it if you can. Next, yeah, absolutely. I think we just came up with next year's panel. I think you're right. Yeah. So, for Dr. Shannon Sindorf, I am Dr. Christopher Bell. We have been the Deconstruction Workers. Thanks for hanging out with me today, Shannon. Oh, thank you, Chris. It's been an absolute pleasure. Awesome. We will see you in two weeks. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is produced and directed by me, Dr. Christopher Bell. If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do for the podcast is give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Feel free to check out thedeconstructionworkers.com, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thedeconstructionworkers, or Twitter at podcastdcw. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can donate as little as a dollar a month towards keeping the lights on at www.patreon.com slash podcastdcw. The Deconstruction Workers is recorded on the beautiful University of Colorado, Colorado Springs campus, 6,033 feet above sea level. The theme song for The Deconstruction Workers was composed by Raphael Crux. As always, please support alternative scholarship and public engagement. The Deconstruction Workers is copyright 2018, all rights reserved.